One of the most famous OSU alums ever is the subject of a new feature film opening around the country this weekend. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley. This is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score, 89.7's weekly look at sports. This week, we'll hear from the author of a new book about what he calls a rebellion against the NCAA. We'll also talk to a former Buckeye basketball player and current basketball writer about his friendly feud with Evan Turner and how their relationship came full circle this week. But first, maybe the most famous OSU alum of them all is the subject of a new feature film. Who do we have here? I'm Jesse Owens. You're a natural I don't trust naturals. The film Race tells the incredible and complicated story of Jesse Owens. The OSU sprinter is one of the most decorated Olympians ever, but the story of his life outside of those 1936 Olympics isn't quite as known. For more on Jesse Owens and his life after Berlin, we sat with Ben Bays. He's a producer for WOSU-TV and was the executive producer of the Big Ten documentary Jesse Owens, The Enduring Spirit, back in 2011. He was originally born in Oakville, Alabama um, in uh, 1913, and, you know, he was uh, born into a family of sharecroppers, and, you know, it was a very rural setting, and they were out in the fields picking cotton at the age of seven, and, you know, they were picking up to about 100 pounds of cotton a day at the age of seven. Sounds heavy. What brought him to Ohio? Um, I think the family moved uh, to Ohio for more opportunity. They moved to Cleveland um, when Jesse was about nine years old. And um, when they were there, you know, he was in school. And that's actually one of the, the interesting stories is how he got his name. Uh, Jesse, his, his name was actually James Cleveland Owens. And uh, when he was in school, he pronounced, you know, someone mispronounced his name J.C. as Jesse. Mm. And the name kind of stuck. So uh, that's how he got it. A lot of people associate Jesse Owens with the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And he was a transcendent athlete before that. He tied a world record for the 100-meter dash in, in high school, and he, he set three world records in college. He was just an all-around athletic beast. Yeah, and in fact, those, you know, the Big Ten, Ten Championship in 35 when he um, you know, broke those three world records and tied a fourth in the space of about 45 minutes. I mean— Yeah, it's called the four, best 45—the greatest 45 minutes in sports. Yeah, it was just unlike anything that I'd ever, you know, seen at that point. So, you know, the space of that and then the next year at the 36 Olympics, I mean, in the space of two years, he's, you know, breaking all these records and— the records he, he uh, held at the Olympics stood for over 20 years. So, Well, help us to really understand the 1936 Olympics. They're in Berlin, obviously in Germany, a country ruled by Adolf Hitler at the time. Uh, a lot of tension, and Jesse Owens steps on the world stage and basically proves racism wrong. Yeah, and and that was sort of the, you know, one of the, the things that, um, you know, that – that that entire Olympics was so ironic. There was actually a boycott that uh, that was kind of proposed before the Olympics. A lot of folks were talking about boycotting it for that very reason. And um, and initially, Jesse Owens was in favor of the boycott. And he um, mentioned that in an interview at one point. And then, uh, and then the coach kind of pulled him aside really quickly and said, no, 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 don't say that. You know, we want to go compete. Right. And the, there were a lot of reasons why the athletes wanted to go compete um, not the least of which was the fact that they faced, you know, plenty of racism at home. And they sort of the I think the logic was, um, you know, let's go compete in this, you know, obviously um, 
racist environment, uh, you know, because we, we can't say that we're not going to go compete there when we face these problems back home as well. So they really wanted to go and prove themselves there. Uh, most people know the story about what happened in Berlin, the, the races he won. But talk about the barriers he broke down in those 36 games. Well, um, I don't, you know, I don't know how much I can speak to the barriers in, that he broke down in those games in, in the sense that when he actually went to the Olympics, he, he had actually said he was uh, treated more favorably there than he was um, you know, back home. And um, I think the kind of the culture of the Olympics being all these different countries working together and competing athletically, there was actually quite a bit of camaraderie there. Um, the, you know, the, there's the famous moment. The, the racism that he faced was really from um, Adolf Hitler and that entire regime. Um, in fact, the, the famous story is, of course, when Jesse Owens won his gold medals, um, Adolf Hitler got up and walked out of the walked out of the stadium. Um, there were, there's even a, a more curious story that we um, discovered during the, the course of the documentary, and we really weren't sure um, the details of it. A lot of it's inferred, but one of the stories is that, you know, Jesse Owens was originally up for three um, events, and um, during, the, during the process, um, he was brought in to replace um, two Jewish uh, track athletes, and there was some speculation that there were some back deal, um, um, there were some back deal kind of maneuverings, uh, a lot of which was protests by Germany that they didn't want to endure a few further humiliation at the hands of uh, Jewish American athletes, and so they they brought in Jesse Owens to um, replace them, and that's how he ended up winning his fourth gold medal in that in that race. Um, whether or not those are substantiated or claim, mm-hmm. nobody knows. But those, it was an interesting story that we found. Backing up a little bit, Owen's obviously a star athlete here at Ohio State. I was astonished to hear that he did not have a scholarship. He had to work several part-time jobs going through school. Um, yeah. This was very likely a widespread practice at the time. OSU wasn't alone in doing it. I, I ask because OSU has several facilities named after Owens. They obviously take great pride in having him as an alum. The track stadium is named after Jesse Owens, but... They didn't offer him a scholarship at the time, and it seems like they're, you know, this is obviously, you know, this is the previous century, 1930s, but mm-hmm. it seems like they're almost speaking out of both sides of their mouth with this. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I can't really speak to to that whole that whole side of it. I mean, there has been some discussion about um, about that to a certain degree, but I, I really don't know enough about it to, yeah. to talk about that. I know that they said at the time the scholarship wasn't available and he did have to work several jobs, and I don't know to what degree the scholarships were available or not. Yeah. And after the 1936 games, let's talk about Jesse Owens' life a little bit. He had his amateur status ripped from him for doing several endorsements, and he went on to form a black baseball league, and he would actually race horses in between innings. Talk about his life after the Olympics. Yeah, after the Olympics um, was for us making the documentary was one of the most um, interesting parts of the story because everyone had kind of up to that point known about the the Olympic Games, but what followed after was a, a really a series of of a lot of uh, sad and and you know kind of tragic series of misfortunes. When Jesse um, had just finished the Olympic Games, the athletes went on a series of kind of um, you know round the world. Tours and yeah, events. promotional events. Yeah, yeah, and they had to pay for their own way to do that. The they 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 were not being paid to do that. They had to 
they had to kind of do that themselves. And so there was a huge financial burden placed on Jesse to go do that. And they often didn't know where they were going until the morning they woke up. And um, he also, at the same time, was getting all of these offers from back home, these job offers because of his newfound celebrity status. And so he was really weighing this, you know, do I go back home, uh, get a job with, you know, and kind of capitalize on this newfound um, status and be able to support my family. And he talked to, um, you know, the coach at the time and the coach, um, they uh, encouraged him to go do that and go home. And so he did and he left and went home. And in doing so, um, the AAU, which was the, 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 um, I guess the NCAA at the time, the, 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 that body, um, Governing college athletics. Yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah, they basically um, they they never forgave him for that and wasn't allowed then to compete in future races. But he goes home and finds out that none of those offers that were given him were actually genuine, and there was a lot of you know come on up to meet and greets mm-hmm. and a lot of photo ops, but there weren't any really substantial offers, and so. Uh, he came back to a very disillusioned um, period in segregated America when all of the track athletes came back home. Um, the white track athletes were invited to the White House. Jesse was not invited to the White House. And um, there was that that very real segregation um, that existed during that time. And so for a period of about um, 10 years until um, about the late 40s after World War II and 47, he – really struggled to try to find his his place. Yeah, he eventually uh, started a dry cleaning business, then he filed for bankruptcy and was eventually prosecuted for tax evasion. Um, I, I also didn't know until researching this interview that Owens was really critical of Tommy Smith and John Carlos when they raised their fists in the air at the um, at the Mexico City Games. He said, uh, quote, the black fist is a meaningless symbol. When you open it, you have nothing but fingers, weak, weak empty fingers. The only time the black fist has significance is when there's money inside and that, that probably gets to, to some of what you're talking about, this disillusionment he felt when he came back and everybody pretended to be his friend, but nobody had any money for him. Yeah. He said there was a quote that uh, we'd used that said it was pretty clear that everybody was going to invite me up to their suite, you know, pat me on the back and shake my hand, but no one was going to offer me a job. And I think that was something that um, that was that he definitely felt. And we had heard anecdotally stories from people who had known him or had experienced him that that was very much, uh, um, you know, a part of his life. But it was never something that he put out publicly, but it was a very, um, it was just a very tragic reality, uh, you know, of the 1930s. And the, and the second part of that too was that so many people were championing him as this, um, as kind of this fight against racism, Aryan race, you know, racism of mm-hmm. Hitler and without really bothering to check, you know, their own. Well, this really has been fascinating, Ben. We've learned a lot. Ben Bays, an executive producer here at WOSU-TV. He produced the Big Ten Network documentary on Jesse Owens titled Jesse Owens' Enduring Spirit, a feature film on Owens called Race, opens nationwide this weekend. Good to see you as always, Ben. Yeah, thank you for having me. Turning now to a slightly lesser-known Ohio State alum, 
former basketball player Mark Titus. Mark Titus is much better known for his blog, Club Trillion. He also wrote a book called Don't Put Me In, Coach, and he went on to write for the ESPN website, Grantland. If you follow Titus, you probably always knew that he had a feud with former National Player of the Year Evan Turner. Well, it turns out that feud was a lot worse than most people thought. Yeah, it was. We sat down with Titus this week to talk about Evan Turner, but first, fittingly, we talked OSU hoops. All right, Mark, so we're talking on Wednesday. OSU just beat Michigan last night. I don't know if you could assign a percentage at this point, but it's. I think most experts would say it's unlikely that OSU gets in the tournament. Uh, what are your your thoughts on that at this point? Yeah, I would say it's it's not likely, but it, there's still a possibility. You know, they got they got three big games coming up: two against Michigan State, one against Iowa. Um, you could look at that and say, "Oh, we're in trouble. We're going to get smoked all three of those," uh, and that's not going to help the tournament. Or you could look at it as opportunity. And I know certainly. Being in the locker room for, for Coach Mata's post-game speech, they're certainly looking at this as an opportunity to, to show what they can do. And uh, if they win those games, not, they don't even have to win all of them, I don't think, but you know, you, you knock off a Michigan State and Iowa, you're, you're getting the attention of the selection committee. So they have an opportunity in front of them. I think right now as it stands, certainly if the tournament started tomorrow, they'd be on the outside looking in, but uh, they have an opportunity. And certainly anything can happen in the Big Ten tournament. Uh, there's a chance for Theoretically, right. every team to make it in. Right. I mean, not just winning. I don't think they necessarily need to win. Um, but again, you could. There's no telling who you're going to play. Maybe you'll you beat Michigan State, you beat Iowa, and then you play like a, a Maryland in the Big Ten tournament. You beat them, and that's another great win. Um, and and we should say, I mean, Ohio State under Coach Mata has been great in the Big Ten tournament. He's he's been mm-hmm. historically he is the single best coach in Big Ten tournament history. So. Uh, they seem to get hot at the right time for for that, so that's certainly a possibility. A lot of people said going into this year, this would be a really telling year for Mata. If he could take this team to the tournament, it would be an mm-hmm. amazing coaching job. What are your your thoughts on the season so far? Is it is it somewhat of a disappointment, or you think Thad's done a good job, or where do you come um, down? So that? I'm really close to the to the situation. I, I I have a great relationship with Coach Mata, so I, I'm obviously a little biased, but I, I really, as an alum, I'm speaking as alum, less as a as someone who has a personal relationship with them, I I actually like this team. I, I they're frustrating. They're young. They make a lot of stupid mistakes that that you know just make you want to yell at your TV and stuff. But I like the progression they're making. I, I think they play really hard. Um, and I think this was the plan all along. I mean, I think Coach Mata going into the season, it's not like he had. I think he knew if he made the tournament, he would be very very pleased with how the season went, even just making it at all. So. Um, I think it's going as expected. I think the plan is in place. Uh, the good thing about this group of guys is there doesn't really seem to be, and, and knock on wood, but there doesn't seem to be a guy who's going to leave early for the NBA in this group. Uh, so this is the kind of team where you, you build a foundation. They're going to stick around for two or three years. Maybe you sprinkle in some one-and-done recruits. Maybe you hit it big in recruiting the next couple of years, and, uh, and, and we're really in business next year and beyond and stuff. So I, I think this is a good foundation. It, it, basketball certainly is, is – basketball fans are, are not patient fans when you when you see teams like Kentucky and Duke just Reload cycling through year. reloading and and it's tough to watch that and you don't want to be patient but um sometimes you do have to hit that reset button sometimes a guy like D'Angelo Russell leaves early and you're, you're just like you didn't expect that to happen and and stuff like that happens and and you, you got to do that and I think they're the plan that they have in place um so far it's it's going according to plan so I'm optimistic. Yeah, I mean, when's the last time Ohio State had a rebuilding year? That's exactly what they're doing. This team is built for next year, for next March. And if they do make it to March this year, you know, that's a 
that's an extra bonus on, on right. what and could be could happen. Coach Coach Mata is a victim of his own success. I think. I think uh, he he set the bar so high for so long, won so many championship Big Tens and Big Ten tournaments and Final Fours, and and that's kind of become the norm around here. That for for him to now say, hey hey Ohio, hey Buckeye Nation, I need you guys to, to just be patient here. I think a lot of people are like, wait a second, where's I, I was I was getting used to these Sweet 16s every single year and and Big Ten championships. So um, yeah, it, it's not exactly fun, but but that's part of the deal, and, and I think they'll be fine. The Tuesday game against Michigan, Ohio State retired Evan Turner's number, uh, an all-time great player at Ohio State. You played with him at mm-hmm. the same time, and during the during the game, you sent out some tweets that were pretty telling about your relationship. Yeah. Kind of walk us through your relationship with with Evan Turner and how that's evolved to the present day. Yeah, so Evan and I were very real enemies. I mean, it, it, I, sh- I mean, it's not like we wanted to kill each other or anything like that. It, you just it didn't like each other. He was just the villain. Yeah, he was the, we just didn't really like each other's company. It was just, you know, like, I, I, it's not like every time we saw each other, we were like rabid dogs, like waiting to attack each other. It was just more like, I just don't want to be around you. You don't want to be around me. Let's just kind of come to practice and go home um and and that started when he when he got to Ohio State and uh part of that from from my perspective part of that was he came into to Ohio State with a huge chip on his shoulder he was an out-of-state recruit not a lot of, he wasn't really highly regarded I mean I know he was on some of the rankings but it wasn't like he was a McDonald's All-American and all that so he felt kind of underappreciated and that people didn't really know him and respect his game as much as they should have as he as he came to school so uh he had that chip on his shoulder I kind of tried to get him to to calm down a little bit, and um, we butted heads a lot. Uh, but you say, were, you say that he threw punches. There were a couple times, and and to be honest, it was probably because I was instigating too far. Like I have I have a problem of if I see that you're not reacting well to something, I'm just going to keep poking it yeah. until you. And I've, I've I've tried to get better at that. That's that's just something that I uh, I don't know. But yeah, he did throw he did throw punches one or two times. Um, so. That that was like early on, as he started to become the national player of the year, he put together that f- phenomenal 2010 season, um, and and my blog was starting to take off. Both of us were kind of all the insecurities we had about you know like I was kind of insecure about my role in the team. He was insecure about how he wasn't getting the respect he thought he deserved, and that's kind of what caused a lot of our problems. Those sort of softened, and we became I wouldn't say we're friends, but we were definitely kind of understood each other a little bit better. Um, so fast forward to now, I, I love Evan. I love him to death. I was there last night. Uh, I was so excited to see him get his number put in the rafters. It's so cool. I told him, actually, I said, I think I'm more excited for this than you are. Like, cause he, even him, like right now, he's just, he was definitely excited, but I think this is something that he'll look back on in 10 years and he'll, that'll, that's really when it'll hit him. Like right now you could almost see that he's still in like, I'm in NBA mode. This is, you know, I'm, I gotta go back to my NBA season soon. So, um, I was really excited for him. He was he was a great player. He and I butted heads a lot, but uh, in the end, um, we have a good relationship. Mark, you men- mentioned the 2010 season. You mentioned mm-hmm. Matta's success in the Big Ten Championship. Much of that has to do with Evan Turner. I mean, in two- right. 2010, we, we, we just talked a little bit before about that game against Purdue. He went off in the second half and turned that game around, and then the half-court shot with 2.2 seconds left mm-hmm. against, uh, against Michigan in the Big Ten Tournament is – Evan Turner's success and the retiring of his number it's obviously well deserved. Yeah, so I have I've seen the debate on 
on live online and and whatever it should evan have his jersey retired and i don't understand why there's a debate i mean i he's he might not be the first name that people think of when they think of kind of coach mata era ohio state players and that's probably just because we didn't go to a final four with with evan evan never made a final four but that's not because of evan that's like we wouldn't have even made the tournament without evan that year um we we were four deep we had lighty diebler Buford and Evan and that was pretty much it and like Dallas Lauderdale and Kyle Madsen would play but they they would just go out and set screens and rebound and and honestly if coach Mata could have only played four guys that year he would have if he could have played one guy he would have he just would have put Evan out there and thrown in the ball so it is completely deserved in my mind maybe it's just because I was close to the situation I lived it but like there were so many times where coach Mata would call timeout and would basically just say, just look at Evan and be like, where do you want the ball? What are we going to do? Like, we, we're, we're just going to give the ball to you and you have to score for us. So go. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll score. I'll, I'll score every time. Just give me the ball every time and I'll score. And he carried that team like nothing I've ever seen. And I've, I've played a ton of basketball in my life, obviously. And I've never seen one player. I've never been a part of a team where one player just said, guys, follow me. I mean, I've, I've been a part of teams like that, but they don't actually do it. They say, right. follow me, and then they, they lead you down a terrible <laughs> path. But for one guy to actually come through and just be like, hey, I'm going to take you guys to the Sweet 16 by myself. And you're like, no, you're not. And then he goes, yeah, watch this. I'm going to score 30 points. back. To, I'm going to hit a shot against Michigan. And I think he scored 31 in the next two games in the Big yeah. Ten tournament. So he was he was amazing that year. And, and National Player of the Year, I mean, just John Wall – was amazing he's had an amazing nba career and evan sweat and he was that was the year that he was there with evan was 2010 Mm -hmm. and evan beat him out for all the national player of the year awards like that's that should tell you how good evan was that he beat out a guy like john wall for all these awards so did did you appreciate him at the time i know you didn't didn't like him personally part of the time did you still appreciate the greatness oh yeah oh my god i appreciated him so like that was that was part of what made it so funny to me was like i I love this guy. I, I actually, and when we we got along, I really liked being around him. But like, I loved watching him play. I loved being around. I loved being on his team in practice. Like when we would get put on his, because he would always put me in the right spots. Like he would know what I was good at, and so he would drive the ball to the lane and, and know the certain timing to like get my guy to come. So when he passed it to me, I'd be open and stuff like that. He was so fun to play with. He was so fun to watch. Um, so yeah, I definitely appreciated it. So for me to see people say like, he shouldn't get his jersey retired. I mean, if you want to argue like the other stuff outside of the basketball, like maybe he hasn't graduated and, and you're like have an old school approach on that. Like we want four year guys or we want graduate. I, I don't really have a rebuttal for that. That's just your philosophy of thinking and you're, you're free to think that way. But if we're talking like just on court stuff and mm-hmm. the impact he had on the program, he absolutely deserves his, his number to, to be up in the rafters for sure. We've been talking with Mark Titus about Ohio State basketball and Evan Turner. Mark was a walk-on basketball player at Ohio State and author of the book, Don't Put Me In Coach. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. College sports generate about $13 billion a year. But hardly any of that money goes to the athletes who play the games that make that money, mostly Division I football and basketball players. That imbalance and the effort to fight it is a subject of Joe Nocera's new book called Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. 
which follows NCAA history up until the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit over athlete pay. No, Sarah spoke with NPR's Ari Shapiro this week. They started their conversation talking about Mohamed Lasaja, a Nigerian basketball player who dreamed of playing in the U.S. Somebody tells him, well, the way you do this is you go to Russia, and it's a way station uh, for the United States. So he goes to Russia, and basically he's told that he has to sign a professional contract, which, by the way, he can't read because it's in Russian. And he has to play basketball in Russia, and he's going to be paid a certain amount of money. In fact, he doesn't get any money, and he's basically uh, stuck in Russia This is a total scam. Yeah, it's a 100% scam. And then what does the NCAA do when he gets to the U.S.? Well, immediately when he gets to the University of Louisville, where he's accepted to play basketball, uh, the NCAA rules him ineligible because he's been a professional in Russia. And he sues. And in court, the head investigator is on the stand, and Lesege's lawyer asks her if somebody put a gun to a kid's head and said, you have to sign this or I'll shoot you, would he be ineligible to play college ball? And she said, yes. The principles that underlie the NCAA's philosophy seem like reasonable principles. Students should be amateurs. They should be college students. They should not be paid millions of dollars. But so many of the stories you tell seem like distortions of those reasonable principles. Like people are just divorced from reality or out to get a student for no good reason. Did you get a sense of what is actually going on in people's heads in all of these stories that you retell? I think I do have a pretty good sense of it. Amateurism, which is the core principle of the NCAA, may have started out as a good idea, but with so much money now flowing into college sports, it's become a sham, and it's become kind of an excuse not to pay the labor force who are bringing in the billions of dollars that are enriching everybody else. The NCAA itself is a kind of bureaucratic, rules-oriented organization And it's very suspicious, particularly of disadvantaged black youths who are coming out of high school who may have a benefactor of some sort. And they're always kind of looking for those kinds of players that they can then investigate and in many cases rule ineligible. Do we miss the larger story when we're talking about poor black college athletes whose lifeline out of poverty to an education comes with all of these terrible catches When, in fact, they are the tiniest sliver of people with the athletic ability to get the lifeline out of poverty, strings attached or no. There's a fair amount of truth to what you just said. On the other hand, the exploitation that is taking place in terms of enrolling them in a university, and then they're expected to put their sport first and their education second. Their sport is a full-time job, 40 to 50 hours a week. And then the coach is making $5 million. The athletic director is making $2 million. The conference is bringing in, you know, $200 million in television revenue. And by the way, very few of them do, in fact, become pros. Very few of them do, in fact, make money. Something like 5%, you said? Yeah, it's a very small. male football and basketball players. So you've got these kids who are between the ages of 18 and 21. This is the time when they are marketable, when they actually have the ability to make some money. And you're basically saying to them, except for the 5%, we're going to exploit you. Good luck once you're done. Your book tells the story of a rebellion that nearly crushed the NCAA, but ultimately didn't quite. That's right.
And I find that very disheartening, I might add. Joe Nocera's new book with co-author Ben Strauss is called Indentured, the Inside Story of the Rebellion Against the NCAA. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me, Ari. It was a real pleasure. And that will do it for this week's edition of After the Score. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes and also using the WOSU Public Media mobile app. You can also follow us on Twitter at After the Score. Until next week, I'm Thomas Bradley. And I'm Steve Brown.